You're listening to Pangea, the podcast about global ideas. I'm Jacqueline Schiff. Today, I am very pleased uh, to bring you a special edition of Pangea in conjunction with the Council of American Ambassadors and the Meridian International Center. In today's episode, the Council's Ambassador Rosa Pep interviews Ambassador John Maestow, who is uh, who has served in a diplomatic capacity in seven countries in Latin America. Now, Ambassador Maisto uh, recently got back from a council trip to Cuba and shares some of his very frank observations on the country, uh, you know, talking about stuff like what do Cubans really think of Americans and, you know, how are they um, viewing this warming of relations between the United States and Cuba. Later on in the interview, they get into a discussion about the broader context for the changes in uh, U.S.-Cuba relations. So looking at how what is going on currently in the hemisphere and major uh, trends in hemispheric and regional relations are affecting the changes uh, between the United States and Cuba. So really an interesting discussion and um, with you know, someone in this case, Ambassador uh, Maestow, who has um, enormous experience in this region and a very intimate understanding uh, for the background and issues that are all um, coming to a head now, giving his um, giving some really open and you know what I thought were um, were honest um, observations uh, from his recent trip and just uh, sort of general assessment and analysis of the situation. So I, I hope you enjoy this. This is something a little uh, different for Pangea, but we're very pleased to bring this to you. And um, and uh, as soon as we get more content from uh, from the council and the Meridian International Center, we will be happy to share it with you. As always, I'm open to your feedback and comments. So feel free to get in touch with me over Twitter or email. And um, if for some reason you are listening to this uh, for the first time or this is the first time you are learning about Pangea, please check out the website, watchpangea.com. That's W-A-T-C-H, Pangea, P-A-N-G-E-A.com. And you can see past episodes. um, And uh, there's also a link to um, iTunes and um, our SoundCloud page and everything else. So, without much further ado, uh, take a listen. Here's the interview. Hi, this is Ambassador Jim Rosenpeck, your host today for CAA Live at Meridian, the podcast on international affairs sponsored by the Council of American Ambassadors and Meridian International Center in Washington, D.C. The Council is the association of non-career U.S. ambassadors who's represented America from presidents from Dwight Eisenhower to Barack Obama. Meridian Center promotes global leadership through the exchange of ideas, people, and culture. Our guest today is Ambassador John Maestow, former Foreign Service Officer for 35 years who served in seven countries in Latin America and East Asia and is Deputy Assistant Secretary for Central America. He was U.S. Ambassador to Nicaragua and Venezuela under President Clinton and National Security Council Senior Director for Latin America and Ambassador to the Organization of American States under President George W. Bush. Ambassador Maestow? Thanks for joining us today. It's a pleasure being here. You and your colleagues visited uh, Cuba recently. Um, 
It was your third visit in three years, and obviously you know the region very well. In that trip, you met with officials and ordinary people. Um, what were your major impressions? Cuba is a fascinating place. It would be, uh, I think we're going to see a lot more Americans going to Cuba, and that's good. Um, overriding impressions. Number one, there is no problem among the Cuban people and America. None whatsoever. So there isn't a resentment of 50 years of isolation and all that? There is no resentment at all that is palpable. What you get is uh, a desire to be closer to the United States, even from people who uh, represent the policy of the government in power in Cuba. Um, The... uh, There's a Cuba of before December 17th, 2014, when the joint announcement was made between President uh, Barack Obama and uh, the president of Cuba, Raul Castro. This was was the announcement of negotiations to restore diplomatic relations and move towards normalization of the overall relationship. Correct, correct. That process has begun. Both sides are negotiating. Uh, It's going to be very difficult when you get down to the nitty-gritty, negotiations are always difficult. But the overriding feeling among the Cubans that uh, the visiting group met um, from all walks of Cuban society was one of hope. They see change coming. They want change to take place. They want a normal relationship with the United States that diplomatic relations, full diplomatic relations represent. So the first hurdle is going to be to simply open up full-fledged embassies in both countries. And what are the the top issues specifically on opening up um, diplomatic relations? They've met several times already. If, if we were flies on the wall in the room, what would we be hearing the Cubans say? What would we be hearing the Americans say? The first thing you would hear the Cubans say is the following. The two countries cannot have normal diplomatic relations if the United States of America maintains Cuba on the their international terrorism list that the executive submits to the Congress every year. You Why is Cuba on the terrorism list today? This goes back to about 25 years when the Cubans were sponsoring groups that we sometimes called terrorists they called revolutionary. But beyond that, uh, there was Cuban support in Africa, in certain countries, in Central America. Is that going on today? Uh, the Cubans say nothing like that takes place. They're not doing anything like that. I haven't seen any indication that they are doing things like that. Um, this does not mean that they are not ideologically inclined to some of these to some of these entities, and they do support governments that are bent in that direction, particularly in the Western Hemisphere, particularly Venezuela. Uh, uh, so uh, it's, uh, but, but, but it's not under the, uh, the well-recognized definition of terrorism. Number one from the Cuban That's side. from the Cuban point what, what of would, view. What would be issue? The second issue following close by is the economic embargo. They want an end to the embargo. They call it a blockade. That's 
a bad use of the words, of words. Uh, we know what a blockade is. That's what President Kennedy did in 1962 to prevent the Soviet Union from exporting nuclear weapons into Cuba. Well, that was a blockade. Well, what, what are we doing? What we're doing is um, limiting our commerce. Nevertheless, it is not well known that the United States is one of the main trading partners of Cuba. And one would say, wait a minute, how can this be? There's an economic blockade, except for the fact that the Congress has carved out exceptions exceptions in the agriculture area, which translate into bipartisan support in certain congressional districts and states (laughs) that are agricultural exporters. Those are people who want a normal relationship with Cuba. Uh, And who else wants it? The U.S. Chamber of Commerce. You you made a a point about the distinction between a blockade and an embargo. is there that distinction in Spanish as well? well? How do you say blockade in Spanish? How do you say? Oh no, it's the same difference in Spanish. It, it is okay. No, so this is not a language problem. No, <laughs> it's no language problem, and everybody who speaks the language, both languages, knows that. So, what are the big issues on the U.S. list? If we were in the what would they uh, say? The U.S. list. Um, oh, by the way, the Cuban list also goes on to. Okay, go ahead. Uh, and it's something, in my view, that would be impossible to achieve with the United States, and that is compensation in some sort for the effects of the economic embargo. That's under, I I just don't see anything like that coming, that's my own view. Then there's the issue of Guantanamo, and that was kind of added um, kind of at the end, uh, that the Cubans, it's a foreign base in their territory, um, but uh, that's kind of farther down the list. For the United States, uh, and by the way, the number one for the Cuba is, and number one is the end of the terrorist uh, designation, designation right. and number two, the end of the embargo. Uh, for the United States, uh, the interests are, uh, number one, uh, there's an immediate one. We want our U.S. diplomats to be able to travel all over Cuba. And with normal diplomatic relations, we won't have that prohibition. Uh, the Cubans also do something that's rather curious. Anybody who goes into the American interest sections in Havana has to be registered in. That means any Cuban who wants to go in to see somebody in the interest section has to, uh, has to identify himself or herself. During um, your recent trip, to what extent were you and your colleagues able to travel freely around Cuba? Oh, we traveled freely. Yeah, we had license to travel. We landed in, uh, we flew into Cienfuegos. And then we went by bus uh, down to the beautiful colonial town of Trinidad. We went over to see the Bahia de los Cochinos, where the invasion took place back in uh, 1962. Um, and, uh, the Bay of Pigs. Or the Bay of Pigs, that's right. And then uh, on to Havana, which gave us a chance to see um, the, Cuban, the Cuban interior. Uh, the Cubans need a lot of investment in agriculture. The collective farm system has not worked very well. We saw examples of that. The Cubans are beginning to take baby steps away from that approach to agriculture, but they have a long, long, long way to go. I just Before we move on, I did want to ask you about the, the surveillance and so forth. I mean, did you have a Cuban government minder with you on your trip, or you were literally as free to travel around Cuba as you would be to travel around the United States? No, we traveled around freely. We had a group that was organized. Uh, uh, the Cuban tourism business is uh, organized by the Cubans. For example, the bus is provided by the tourist agency, uh, and we had a translator who uh, is part of the 
tourism. So they were not explicitly spies. I uh, no, we didn't get the impression. We we felt we felt uninhibited. Okay, in thank every you. Way. That's I think uh, that's well, and and people. several of us uh, would just wander around uh, uh, Havana as uh, as 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 I did, as I do in any foreign country. I go around the big city. But what the United States is interested in is... Um, but they won't let our diplomats do that. Is that well, what you're saying? No, no now the, our diplomats can't go beyond uh, a ring around Havana City. Of course, their diplomats can't go beyond a ring around both Washington and New York. But that is so old, it's about time that that ended. With full diplomatic relations, that, that will end. But we have some other, we have some other, other real issues with Cuba. What are there, there are some terrorists... American terrorists who uh, uh, escaped from the United States and took up residence in Cuba and have lived there for years, we want them extradited uh, back to the United States. Um, we uh, uh, are interested in working with the Cubans with regard to things that the Cubans consider entirely their own internal business, and that is everything having to do with human rights and opening the country to normal democratic practices. But some other practical things that we want, we want to move forward on telecommunications, on uh, the ability to make telephone calls, which is very expensive, which are very expensive out of Cuba, internet penetration. We want to see all of that go forward naturally um, so that uh, there can be more uh, communications among, uh, among uh, well, for Cubans in general. Um, so... Uh, we're looking uh, very uh, intently at that sort of thing. There are issues of property expropriation that have to be dealt with. Those issues have been dealt with in countries, for example, in Eastern Europe after the fall of communism. Uh, I used to deal with them when I was U.S. ambassador to Nicaragua. There are approaches that, uh, that can be done. Um, so uh, that's... Um, those are the, 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 the big issues for the United it's, States. It's, it's, However, and, but, but there's another thing that we can and should do and people are talking about, and that is cooperation in areas with which we have no really deep differences. For example, for example um, our Coast Guards, environmental cooperation in the seas in case of any... Uh, in everybody's spill. interest. Every, everybody is interested in, uh, in, in, in that sort of thing. Anti-narcotics work. The Cubans have a strong anti-narcotics policy. Uh, air safety, um, uh, migration and trafficking in persons. Those are things that piece by piece we can get our arms around, and they will create a better atmosphere for dealing with other un- issues. Understandably. As you describe the issues on both sides, um, they do sound solvable and resolvable. They don't sound, as someone who has never been to Cuba but has served in Eastern Europe and dealt with some of these issues, um, it seems as though, from what you're saying, that you have a highly motivated Cuban population and government to try to resolve these issues. And President Obama certainly seems to be highly motivated on the U.S. side to come to some agreement. Um, Is it your view that these are negotiations that are likely to drag on for the next five years, or are these negotiations, given what the issues are and given what you heard in Cuba and your obviously deep knowledge of the region, are the, is this likely to be resolved in the next few months? What's your sense of it? My own view is that the really difficult work has now, is now just beginning. We've gotten over a hump. 
which was a big political hump here in the United States, and it was a big hump in Cuba as well. It was a surprise in Cuba. Is um, that right? Oh, tell, yeah. tell us a little bit about that. Well, people were surprised. They didn't know it was coming. They didn't expect it to be coming. And one fine day, the 17th of December, because it's a country whose media are controlled. I mean, there was no, you know, uh, not even in the, in the, in the social uh, 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 sector. And, you know, Cuba has a lot of uh, ways to get, you know, news around. Nobody saw this coming in Cuba. And I must say, uh, here in Washington, nobody saw it uh, coming either. It just, it just came. Um, uh, it was... Is it your impression sick. that the initiative, obviously both sides have to come together to dance, but is it your impression that the fact that it came last December and last year in this environment was mostly at the Cuban initiative or mostly at the U.S. initiative? I think there was interest in both sides and a catalytic role was played by the Pope. Tell us about that. Well, I know about as much uh, as I have read in the media. I try to read as much as I can, but apparently the current Pope, who is an Argentine, uh, expressed some interest in uh, using the influence of the Vatican to try to bring uh, the two uh, countries together he dispatched uh, at least one of his career Vatican diplomats, and Vatican diplomats are really very, very talented. <laughs> I have to say I couldn't agree more. There's a reason they've been around for 2,000 years. <laughs> and and it, uh, it worked. Interesting. Um, I don't think the complete story is out yet. It will be interesting to, 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 to read it. Um, but... Uh, both sides knew it was going to be difficult. Raul Castro has regularly said it's you know there's a lot of I work understand. to do. The Im- it something is very very important when it comes to dealing with Latins in general from the point of view of the United States it has to do with style. It has to do with uh, how the United States is perceived. And uh, the current president is perceived positively uh, in Latin America and the Caribbean. And we saw the results of that at the Summit of the Americas in, uh, in, in Panama recently. Um, and uh, if you ask leaders in Latin America what's different now, they will tell you, as I have heard recently, um, directly from Latin American leaders. The difference is that in that conference you had the Cuban leader and the American leader sitting down and talking in a civilized way with each other. Uh, differences? Yes. Admitted to? Yes. Uh, with emotion? By, by some? <laughs> yes. Uh, but uh, with an emphasis, and, and, and the American trait always is, let's focus on the now and what's coming. There's an old adage in Latin America. The Latins never forget history, and the Americans seldom remember history. Anybody dealing with Latin America has to keep that in mind. That's very, that's very good advice. 
You visited Cuba recently with a group of 11 other members of the Council of American Ambassadors. With the big changes underway in U.S.-Cuba relations, our listeners are anxious to hear your impressions and expectations. But first, I want to ask you about the Latin American context of these changes. In our neighborhood beyond Cuba, how are American interests and values doing these days in the hemisphere? It's very good that you pose the question in that way, Jim, because you cannot talk about the United States in Cuba in isolation. It has to be addressed in terms of the entire Western Hemisphere. As we saw in the results of the Summit of the Americas that was recently held in Panama City, Panama, and I'll get to that. But in general, um, we Americans have to remember that the Western Hemisphere is indeed our neighborhood. With everything that the term neighbor implies. By the way, it's not our backyard. What's the difference between a backyard and a neighborhood? Well, think about it in terms of where you live. (laughs) Sometimes your backyard can be very nice and sometimes it can be a place where, you know, (laughs) uh, where the garbage truck passes uh, to pick up the garbage. Uh, The and real, realtors talk about kind of the impression from the front. So it's, it, it, it's the neighborhood. That is the best possible term that uh, U.S. presidents uh, have used from the time of Roosevelt. Uh, and uh, it's important that we keep that in mind. In addition, the Western Hemisphere is a place from a political point of view that has governments in place that are all elected through normal elections. 100% other than Cuba. 100% leaving Cuba aside. I see. And um, those are governments that have some difficulty. There are categories. I put them into, into the thriving democracies, the democracies in difficulty, and maybe the just borderline places where... Leaders have come to power through elections and then have uh, done various things to undermine the independence of uh, democratic institutions. Who would you put at the top of the list in terms of democracy in Latin America these days? Oh, there are quite a few. Um, Let's start with, uh, uh, well, of course, we have our own country and Canada. Those Uh, I would put Mexico. Uh, uh-huh. among the top. I would put Costa Rica among the top. I would put uh, Colombia. I would put Peru. Um, certainly Chile. Absolutely Uruguay. Uh, and, of course, Brazil. Mm-hmm. These are countries that function normally. They have elections. Uh, people believe in the electoral process. Uh, power goes from one political group to another in kind of a normal fashion. Who would you put at the bottom of the list? At the bottom of the list, uh, sadly, uh, I would have to put Venezuela today uh, because uh, when you have opposition groups who have the problems that they have in Venezuela because uh, of the record of of, um, coercion, Uh, to normal uh, opposition political activity, to efforts to turn the screws on the media, uh, to uh, the jailing of some political leaders. And nowadays we're hearing about human rights violations. Um, When you have entities like Transparency International and the Inter-American Human Rights Commission 
and uh, Amnesty International uh, and Human Rights Watch uh, issuing reports that are really quite, quite unnerving, uh, then you get a good idea of what's going in, on. In terms of a country like Venezuela, um, obviously the problems you describe are a problem for their own people. How much of a threat or danger is what you describe in Venezuela to the United States? I don't think Venezuela is much of a danger to the United States at all. I find it uh, very interesting that while you hear lots of political propaganda coming out of Caracas, at the same time, the number one trading partner of Venezuela, uh, particularly in terms of energy, is the United States. And that's also the case in terms of, of uh, items that they consume uh, across the board. Uh, additionally, uh, there has been a decades, centuries-old good relationship between the peoples of Venezuela and the American people. Uh, so uh, it's... Uh, it's Venezuela is there. Uh, I don't see Venezuela uh, being uh, any threat to the United States uh, uh, other than the uh, being nettlesome uh, in terms of uh, what is said uh, publicly. Okay. We, the United States, in several administrations, have tried to sit down with Venezuela and concentrate on the issues that concern us, like energy, commerce, fighting narcotics trafficking, drug money laundering, uh, those sorts of things, and looking for cooperation, and we've always fallen short, and that's unfortunate. I would predict that the current administration is going to try to make those same sorts of efforts with Venezuela. Which other countries would you put on the bottom of the list in Latin America today in terms of democracy? I would put most of them kind of in the middle, okay. struggling. Um, and, uh, and they're struggling because they're dealing with uh, mm, dicey issues in terms of their own uh, polity. Uh, Bolivia is a country that uh, has had to try to integrate indigenous populations uh, into its daily life. And President Evo Morales, controversial, uh, who uh, at times sounds like uh, a neoliberal leader, and at other times like a supranationalist, and other times like a flaming socialist, mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, all of those things together uh, give you an idea of, um, of uh, what that country uh, is going through uh, at this time. But um, in the middle, you have countries that have to deal with daily issues. There is great political competition. Um, uh, in these countries that are struggling, uh, th the media uh, are not being coerced. Uh, political parties are allowed to thrive. There is a legitimate question as to how much power the executive branch has and how executives utilize that power to advance their political interests. But my gosh, we have the same sorts of, of, of questions in functioning democracies in Europe and uh, the America. United States occasionally. That's right. Uh, and, and so that's, uh, but there are degrees in of which that, that takes place. So what does, all, does that picture of the neighborhood mean for American interests today in Latin America? What it means for American interests is that we must engage. 
And when we engage, we cannot uh, do it from a mind framework of one mold fits all. All of the countries are different. And that's where their individual nationalism comes up. Uh, let me give you an example of a country that uh, is a socialist country. By the way, there are several socialist governments, elected socialist governments in the hemisphere with which the United States has an excellent relationship. Chile is one of them. Mm -hmm. Uruguay is one of them. Brazil, well, we have our, our, our problems with Brazil and Brazil with us, but not because of the, of the type of government that's in place. Uh, you have uh, uh, Nicaragua is one, and uh, we have some problems that I think can be addressed. Uh, the party in power in Mexico is the Revolutionary Party. Uh, so uh, you have all of those things. But let me mention one example, and that is little Uruguay, a country of three million people, which during President Bush's administration was going to be really kind of swept under the uh, Argentine collapse economic collapse. Uh -huh. That was back in 2001. The United States of America strongly used its influence in the international financial institutions to ensure that Uruguay survived the tsunami of the Argentine collapse. This was President George W. Bush. Uh, and today, if you go to Uruguay and you ask any Uruguayan who knows anything about government policy, from the socialists to the conservatives, they will tell you that they are grateful to the United States for pulling, sticking with Uruguay uh, through uh, a, an arrangement that required banking uh, reforms uh, and uh, standby help by the International Monetary Fund and uh, an infusion of funding by the World Bank and the U.S. Treasury, by the way, short term. Mm -hmm. And Uruguay made it through. It's, a good, it's an interesting example because I think um, a lot of times both uh, business people, leaders, others in, in Latin America and people in the United States who care about Latin America think that the U.S. government forgets about Latin America, that there's very strong ties through NATO with, with Europe. There are very strong ties with Japan. Everybody's focused on China. Uh, there's always problems in the Middle East. What about Latin America? And you're giving an example, which I think is interesting, of a situation, very small country, very serious situation where the United States government really focused and, as you explained, it really helped. Do you think that the complaint that Latin America doesn't really get the attention it deserves from the U.S. government uh, is, a, is a fair complaint in general or is just a misunderstanding of what's really going on? Well, I think I'm going to give you the classic yes and no response to this. I can understand the concerns that when you take a look at U.S. media day by day, uh, you don't see Latin America referred to much at all unless there's a natural catastrophe, a political catastrophe, or some political leader does something, or we uh, do something or say something. Um, the reason I would submit, the reason over the past, well, since the end of the Cold War, is that the Latin American democracies have been struggling with their systems and have been doing a, a reasonable job. Uh, in the meantime, and it's important to point out, the United States, both Republican and Democratic administrations, has carried out a policy in Latin America that has been pretty stable, pretty persistent, and 
pretty agreeable to both political parties. There are four big poles to this party, to, to this policy. One is supporting and encouraging democracy and human rights. Mm-hmm. Number two would be support for free market economies through trade agreements, mm-hmm. through promoting investment, um, through uh, trade pacts such as uh, NAFTA mm-hmm. and the Central American one uh, with the uh, Dominican Republic, and by the way, trade uh, agrain- arrangements, uh, trade pacts with, with uh, Peru and with Chile and with Colombia mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. with Panama. And by the way, those countries are thriving. They're all in my list of democracies that really, that really work. Uh, parenthesis here, uh, those countries are Pacific countries by and large. And there's a whole new dimension that we have to take a look at in terms of the Trans-Pacific Partnership and the Latin American, North American role therein. So um, uh, the other part of the economic picture is the United States looks uh, for support uh, and good engagement with governments that have um, uh, social safety nets of one sort or another, and all of those governments do. Um, A third thrust of our policy in the hemisphere that has bipartisan support is uh, combating uh, narcotics trafficking, uh, criminal organizations, terrorism, trafficking in humans, uh, and there is good cooperation across the board, by and large, with each Latin American government. And then fourth, there is uh, trying to be active and positive with regard to international organizations, such as the Organization of American States, the Inter-American Development Mm -hmm. Bank, and using the international financial institutions to help, as I indicated in the case of Uruguay uh, back about uh, 14 years ago, uh, to get their their problems resolved. Um, Well, let me ask you this in terms of um, the results of that. I mean, your major initial point was that democracy is thriving in Latin America, basically. There's some problems, but uh, certainly compared to other regions of the world, uh, it seems very much alive and well in, in most places. On the economic side, obviously there are economic problems. There isn't as fast growth as, as we would like. But on the other hand, there's a lot of trade within Latin America, with North America, across the Pacific, the examples that you cited. Um, on the crime and drug side, do you, do you think that there they and we are doing equally equally well uh, in sort of accomplishing America's interests, or would you put that in a little different performance category? Oh, no, that's a different performance category because they and we both recognize that we have huge problems with which to deal. Uh, but let me mention this. Um, as a result of these bipartisan policies over the years, right. uh, I think you can tick off some results, positive results, uh, in the following areas. Uh, Take a look at Central America. They're no longer in civil wars. They're not killing each other. Back in the 1980s, everybody knew about Nicaragua and El Salvador, et cetera, et cetera. Um, We have thriving trade, as you have indicated. Um, uh, Colombia no longer is the issue that it used to be. Back Mm -hmm. 14 years ago, Colombia was almost a failed state because of the revolution, the so-called revolutionaries who were really drug traffickers. And now the peace process is being negotiated uh, uh, among both sides uh, in Colombia. And by the way, Cuba is playing a positive role in this. Oh, that's um, interesting. Yes. And, and finally, the big issue, uh, to my mind, is Mexico. Mexico has elected governments 
Mexico is moving forward economically. It's taken its blows. One-third of the territory of Mexico, by and large, has been incorporated into the U.S. economic system. Uh, and, and an awful lot of Canada as well. See, geography plays a huge role here. Um, the challenge to the United States right now is paying attention to our geographic neighbors, I would say, in priority order, which are between Mexico and Central America. We are seeing this, again, in a bipartisan way. For example, uh, Central America. Central America was in the news about a year ago because of the flow of young kids at the border children north we're right. talking about hondurans and salvadorians and guatemalans uh, uh, people flee what were they fleeing they weren't only fleeing poverty they were fleeing the work of the narcotic organized narcotics gangs right right uh, the president of uh, honduras in washington recently just said that 90% of the crime in Honduras is linked to narcotics trafficking by drug groups. Okay. Um, That is something we have to pay a lot of attention to. The current administration has pending before the Congress a bill to spend a lot of money in Central America, like $1.1 billion. We'll see what the Congress does with it. Do you think that makes sense? Do you think those kind of problems can be seriously addressed with that kind of money? I don't see how they can be addressed without money. These are poor countries. And the notion that all by themselves or with the U.S. um, expounding uh, uh, political philosophies or social philosophies that go back to, oh, why don't you just be self-reliant and take care of this yourself? In the real world, it doesn't work that way. What would that money be spent on? Well, it's got to be spent smart. Right, but on what kinds of things? We're talking about strengthening judicial systems. We're talking about modernizing police forces. We're talking about education, 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 from kindergarten up through university. We're talking about institutions that will fight corruption like what? Like those that collect taxes. In some Latin American countries... The national sport is avoiding paying taxes because, you know, uh, that's not the smart thing to do. And then comes the rationalization. Well, if we pay taxes, they'll steal it anyhow. They're right to a certain extent. There's there's corruption. So corruption has to be combated. There have got to be ways to do this. Uh, A quick example, Transparency International, which is an entity that looks for clear record-keeping right. uh, has just signed an arrangement with Honduras. To do what? To look over their entire internal system and report on corruption. That's fascinating. Another thing that Honduras is doing is inviting a United Nations entity to come in and look at their judicial system in terms of corruption cases. Now think of this. In a, this, is a, this overrides sovereignty to have a bunch of people from outside look at the decisions that are being made and saying, there's corruption here, there's corruption there, et cetera, et cetera. Absolutely. These are things that we want to see happen. 
These are things that have bipartisan support in the Congress. By the way, the latter organization, type of organization, has existed in Guatemala for several years and is making progress. Interesting. Now, you have to measure the progress. It's not going to change from night to day. These are poor countries. Um, and their economies are not in the best shape. They have to diversify them. Uh, there has to be a more prominent role for the private sector that's other than you know, looking out for private sector interests. They've got to understand mm-hmm. how competition takes place. All of these things together uh, make, make up progress. Uh, Ambassador Maisto, many thanks for joining us today. Uh, Ambassador Maisto is an expert on Latin America who recently returned with a group for the Council of American Ambassadors on a visit to Cuba. Uh, this is Ambassador Jim Rosepep for CAA Live at Meridian. Look forward to you joining us next time.